0: Alright, you hear people sometimes say, uh, for instance, uh, yeah, I am going to participate in the worship service, or yeah, this is the worship center, or um, uh, things like, uh, yeah, I really like the worship portion of that service, by which they mean I like the music. And it's true that Calvary Bible Church has worship services and it's true that this is kind of a center where we worship and it's true that we worship when we sing. However, we can sometimes get in our minds the misconception that worship is something that happens for a little while here on Sunday and then the rest of the week we don't worship. And that is broken thinking. We're supposed to worship when we're at our jobs, when we're driving down the freeway, when we're watching TV, when we're shopping for groceries, when we're doing homework, when we're eating, when we're paying the bills, when we're parenting. Our whole life is to be an act of worship. This is when we do corporate worship, which we talked about last week. But then when we go out, we are to worship with the rest of our lives. And this is really what we want to talk about this morning as we look at Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. To get really far from our minds the... The faulty thinking that we kind of have a secular part of our life and we have a sacred part. Right now, this is our sacred part. We have hymns and organ music and, you know, offering and communion and things like that. And then we go out to live our secular lives. No, for the Christian, there is the secular part of your life and that's it. You are to always be for the Lord, always be sacred. in whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or all that you do, you do all to the glory of God. Now the book of Romans, if you've never studied it before has two primary sections. There is the section uh, in the first 11 chapters where Paul addresses doctrine. He does this in pretty much every one of his letters. Up front, he talks about doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Well, in Romans, it's 11 chapters of doctrine. Then in chapter 12 through 16, he begins to address the application of the doctrine, specifically the doctrine of the gospel. How are you as a believer to live out the gospel? This is what... Paul is talking about starting in chapter 12 verse 1. And so our ta- our text is really the point of the spear of the application section of how to live out the gospel as a Christian. And I'm telling you, it's loaded. It's loaded. It's tormenting. It's so loaded. I I just um it's, it's a huge abyss of truth that we could all just like fall into and never hit the bottom. And I, I regret to say that we're just going to have to fly over the text at 30,000 feet and give you a little bird's eye view and, and it's going to be painful. There is so much here. There is so much here. And I just want you to know, there are grand themes. And at the beginning, as Paul begins to address the application, he starts out with broad strokes of just general truths. And then he gets down to some more specifics as he progresses on. And so look at Romans chapter 12 and follow along in your Bibles as I read verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren... So for this morning, I want to give you three vital truths to help you understand how you can worship God all the time as a way of living, as a lifestyle, in everything you do, not just on Sundays, and as a motivation to live a holy life so that you can be the kind of worshiper that God wants you to be. First, understand that all of your life is to be an act of worship. Look at Romans 12:1 again, where Paul says, therefore, I urge you. The Greek, sometimes, when it wants to make emphasis, it'll take words since the order isn't really critical. Um, they'll take words and they'll put them up front in a sentence to emphasize them. In this case, the phrase, I urge you, is put up front. And that is why the English Standard Version and the New King James Version have, I urge you, therefore. The urging is Paul saying, I am going to constantly be urging you to do something. The therefore relates back to what he just said, that we are to live to the praise and glory of God at the end of chapter 11. And really everything that was said in those first 11 chapters. Who is he talking to? He says, brethren. Uh, he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. Brethren. And of course, this is just a general term for all believers. So it would include the cistern, if you want to say that. Not the cisterns, but the cistern as well as the brethren. Um Just anybody who knows Jesus, anybody who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, been born again, transformed by God's grace in a saving way, they are all under that phrase, brethren. The unbeliever, of course, cannot worship God. The unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit. The unbeliever isn't reconciled to God. He doesn't have his sins atoned for, uh, forgiven. He's at enmity with God. He's hostile to God. And so unbelievers cannot worship God. And I tell you this because if you don't know Christ, then this text has nothing to do with you. Your first act of worship needs to be repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. You need to come to the place in your life where you realize you are a sinner and God is holy. His standard is infinitely perfect. You're not. You have fallen short of God's glory. And so because of that, you deserve judgment. Eternal judgment. For the sins you have committed against your creator. But God, out of love for you sent His Son into the world. He became a man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins. And when He was on that cross, He paid the penalty for sin. He bore our sins in His body on that tree, satisfying the justice of God and the wrath of God against sinners. But not every sinner, just those who will repent and believe in Him for eternal life. And if you have never done that, You need to do that. If you never understood that, I'm telling you right now. And now you know. You can get saved right now. You can give your life to Christ right now. You can right now, as you're sitting among other people who look nice and they're dressed up for Sunday church, you can say, Lord, I am a sinner. Lord, I need Jesus to save me. I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and that he rose again for my justification. Save me. And right now, you can be saved forevermore, transformed in your pew where you sit. Do that so that this sermon can apply to you too. If you have been born again, the text before us urges you by the mercies of God. You say, well, what's the mercies of God? The mercies of God are really everything Paul said about the saving gospel up to this point. When you look at mercy and you look in the scripture, you see it's interchanged with salvation and grace and the love of God it's often used kind of loosely to describe God's kindness towards unworthy sinners that bring bring them to repentance in a specific way, a specific sense mercy is that goodness of God whereby he holds back the judgment that sinners deserve so that they have time to hear the gospel and believe and be saved For instance, if God wasn't merciful, the moment you first sinned, He would execute you and you'd be in hell. Mercy, therefore, holds back the judgment we deserve so that we have time to hear the gospel, believe and be saved. Why Paul says in Titus 3, 5, He did not save us because of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but because of His mercy. In that sense, he's using mercy as just all those, yes that attribute of God where he holds back the justice sinners deserve, but really the goodness of God and the grace of God and the love of God and the compassion of God and all of those things that God gives to us so that we can know him and be saved from the consequences of our sins. It's huge. It's huge. We could rewrite the classic hymn, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write about the mercy of God? We could stick mercy of God in there would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Mercy is one of those huge, huge, great doctrines and we, we can't talk about it anymore. We got to move on. Sorry. Look at verse 12, where Paul exhorts all the believers to present your bodies as a... And then at the end of the verse, s- sacrifice to God. I skipped a couple words there on purpose. We'll come back to them. But really, I want you to present yourselves, offer yourselves, give yourselves as a sacrifice to God. Doesn't sound very fun, does it? Especially when you think of burnt offerings. You think, oh, really? Yeah. God wants you to offer your body, everything you are, uh, all that you are, your work, your sleep, your time, your driving, your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner, your hobby time, everything you are, all the time, to always be presenting yourself to God as a sacrifice to Him. Romans 6:13 says pretty much the same thing, and do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin, to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. When Jesus saves you by his grace, when you are born again, when you're transformed, you you turn your back on that... Whatever lifestyle you've lived before coming to Christ, following yourself, Satan, and false religion, whatever it is, you turn your back on that to follow Christ, to walk in newness of life, to walk in the light, to walk in the spirit, to walk according to his truth. And Paul says, listen, once you come to Christ, don't present your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness. Don't use your body to do wickedness. Instead, use it to do righteousness Paul says pretty much the same thing and when speaking of immorality in first Corinthians chapter 6 verses 20 and 21 he says or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you have been bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body Use your body to do godly things. Things that please God. Why? Because you're not your own anymore. You're a slave to God. He purchased you with the blood of Christ to walk in His way. Not the former way you used to live. Stop living in immorality. Stop living in sin. Walk in newness of life. Your body was given to you by God to give Him glory. He bought you. He owns you. You're a slave Get up on the altar of sacrifice and stay there, is what he's saying. Get up there. Stay there. There. On the altar. But if you notice, I left out two very important words. In the middle of verse 1, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is interesting. Paul says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. Well, that's comforting. Because dead being a dead sacrifice would put an end to your walk Quickly. I mean, if you were like a burnt offering, you know, they'd slit your throat and throw you up in the altar and you'd be dead. We'd all be cremated and in short order. But here, he doesn't want a dead sacrifice. He wants a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that keeps on living for the glory of God. In other words, that worships God all the time. Do you remember her, how Paul described himself at the end of his life? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I am already poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure or death has come. What he was saying is, you know what? My whole life, ever since I came to Christ, it's as if I've been a drink offering. A drink offering is when you get like a cup of wine and you would pour it out. He says, my whole life is like that. God has slowly been pouring me out and pouring me out and pouring me out and there's only about a teaspoon left in the cup and he's going to go and I'm going to die poured out in sacrifice and service in worship to God. To always be living for Him all the time. But not only are you to be a living sacrifice look at towards the end of verse uh, 1 there, you are to be a holy sacrifice. A holy sacrifice. What, what does it mean to be holy? The word holy means to be set apart from sin unto God ...or obedience to God. That's what holiness is. You know, we all have things in our life that we do that are sinful. And we need to turn from those things. We need to walk in newness of life. And the reason is, is that's why God saved us. He didn't save us to continue to rebel against Him. He didn't save us so that we could walk in oldness of life. He didn't save us so we could remain an old creature but a new creature in christ you don't scrub the dishes with your cell phone you don't use your stovetop to burn trash with you don't use your cooking utensils to scrub your toilet i hope and if you do don't invite me over for dinner no you set these things apart why they have a specific purpose They have a purpose. Their purpose, this is ones to call with. And, you know, uh, uh, the other ones is to cook dinner on. And the other one is to, you know, flip the pieces of dinner around. And they have a specific purpose. You set them apart for a specific purpose. They are dedicated, set apart, wholly unto their specific tasks. Well, as a believer, you are to be holy unto the Lord. That's your job. You aren't to use your body in a wrong way. Because it's not its purpose. Your body is not purposed to sin anymore. Anymore. Ever again. Don't do it anymore. That's what he's saying. But of course there is bad news. And that bad news is. We are sinners big time. And we're really good at it. I mean we were conceived in sin. Born in sin. And sinned because we're sinners. We are experts at it. Before coming to Christ. We're just really good at sinning. And some of us, you know, lived a long, long time before we came to Christ. So we became like, we got like triple doctorates in sinning. And it's very easy to crawl off the altar into, you know, the dirt and dust of sin below. I mean, we're good at it. I mean, if you're like me, you're, you're up and down all day. You keep falling off. You have an angry thought or lustful thought or anxious thought or, you know, I mean, even just thoughts are bad. The good thing is, is God has given us a very simple and inexpensive way, at least inexpensive to us, to get back up on the altar again when we blow it. And it's called confession. Whenever you sin and you fall off the altar, All you need to do, according to 1 John 1, 9, is to confess your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, as a believer in Christ, positionally, you're already perfect. God sees you as perfect in Christ. But in your practice, we're a long ways off. And because we're a long ways off, we need to make sure that as we're living our life is whenever we blow it, we confess quickly and God throws us back up on the altar. So now we're living for him. But if you're like any normal Christian, you're up, down, up, down all day long. The mature Christian, you know, may sin a little less than the immature Christian. The difference is, is that the mature Christian learns to confess quickly So, they can get back up there. So, they can spend more time on the altar of sacrifice to God than they are groveling down in the dirt and dust of sin below. And so, really, confession is a critical part in making sure we worship God as a pattern of our life. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of terms that you could substitute, like walking in the Spirit, walking in the truth, walking in the life. Walking in obedience. Loving God. All those terms are really synonyms for the same thing. Living life on the altar as a perpetual sacrifice to God. Notice also our text says that we are not only to be living and holy sacrifices. We are to be acceptable to God. The Greek literally reads this. To present yourself a sacrifice... Living, holy, well-pleasing to God. That's what we are to do. We are to be an acceptable to God sacrifice. It's what Paul prayed for in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9-12, through where he prays. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Here we have all the same concepts. You have first knowledge. Load up on knowledge. Then obey, obey, obey. How? By the strength which God supplies. Then what? So you can constantly praise God. I mean, that's pretty much what our text is about, too. You see the whole, you see this over and over. It's just a constant theme reworded in a different way all the way through the New Testament. So when we come really to the punchline for our particular message, since we're focusing on the discipline of always living, uh, on the altar, always worshiping God as a, as a way of life all the time, Paul sums up, Look at the last part of verse 1 where he says, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now the word spiritual here is an interesting word. It's the Greek word logikos, the word we get logic from. And it, it really means reasonable or irrational now, you might wonder why, if you have this word, this logikos word, and it's a reasonable, rational meaning, why it's translated worship. It seems kind of weird. Why, why do they say your spiritual service? You know, why not say your logical or rational service? As a matter of fact, if you were if you have the King James version or the New King James version, you will notice that the word worship doesn't even appear in those verses. In verse 2 or at the end of verse 1, it just says service. And you're thinking, well, where's the worship word and why why did they put it in there? Why did the other versions put it in there? Well, this is why. Because that word, lagakos, is pretty much almost always used to describe The service of the Levites and priests in the temple. Not only that, the context is talking about being a living sacrifice. So because it's saying you need to be a living sacrifice, and it uses that word that's almost exclusively used of priests and Levites in the temple, they translate it spiritual service of worship. You might translate it this, your logical, reasonable worship of God or service to God in a worshipable way. That's what it's talking about. Your entire life is to be poured out as a drink offering to God. If you blow it, if you choose to sin, if you fall off the altar, you just confess, you get back up there. You you stay up there. Get burnt up for Jesus. Poured out for Jesus. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Jack... You know, I understand all this, and I understand this is, you know, it take a lot of effort and really good concentration and discipline to kind of keep yourself up on that altar because, man, I am ai am an expert sinner. I mean, I sin all the time in thought and in deed, and, you know, I would like to be up there more often, but I don't even know how to go about that. Well, Paul tells us. Our second point, understand what you must avoid to worship as a way of life. Look at verse 2. Paul says, and do not be conformed to this world. The word conform describes the process of being shaped, molded, pressed into a certain form or image. The verb is passive, so Paul is saying, don't let the world out there pressure you, push on you, mold you and conform you, so that you look like a worldling. Don't let it happen. Don't let it, the pressures of the world make you look like an unbeliever, like a child of Satan. Peter uses the same word in pretty much the same way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed, there's the word, to the former lusts which were yours and your ignorance. In other words, Paul, Peter's saying, Listen. When you came to Christ, you repented of your sins. You turned from that way of living to have faith in Jesus Christ and to follow Christ. Don't go back and be conformed to that ungodly way of living again. Don't do it. You, know, you start watching some new TV program and you're pretty excited about it. It's pretty interesting. It's fascinating. It's pretty clean and everything is good, and you're watching it. After a couple of weeks, you kind of get hooked. You get to know the characters and go, man, this is great. And then you don't really notice, but over the course of time, the writers start putting in a little bit more innuendo, a little more sensuality and immodesty and immorality. And pretty soon over the course of the program, every week you're just getting bombarded with trash, 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 and you're just sitting there soaking it in, soaking it in. What would have probably turned you off at the beginning of the program now is accepted. You are now conformed. You've been pressed into accept and enjoy as entertainment those things God hates. Paul says, don't, don't do it. A young lady grows up in a Christian home. She has a very strong Christian parents. She's been taught how to dress modestly. And she goes to college and she's hanging around unbelievers who, of course, don't dress modestly. She begins to kind of feel out of place because she feels like she looks different. And she does. Praise God. But she kind of thinks, you know, I could—I am away from home and my parents aren't here and I don't have my mom and dad to harp on me. And after a while, I could compromise a little bit. And over the course of years, she compromised more and more. And the next summer, she comes back and her mom goes, Ah, Who are you? Why are you dressing like that? And she says, Oh, Mom, it's no big deal. Everybody who hates God dresses this way. God says, do not be conformed to the world. Don't let it crush you. And you know what? Satan does not just attack us and say, okay, right now, full on ungodliness. No, it's always by degrees. You know, what if I, after the service today, I said, hey, uh, could I talk to you? And you're thinking, uh, me? Yeah. It's like, okay, Pastor Hughes, what is it? You know, um, I was wondering... Could I just like defile your mind and your conscience for a couple minutes? Just for a couple minutes. You know, I'll, 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 it's, it's going to be bad, but I just want to defile your mind and conscience for a few minutes. And you just kind of get this indignant look in your face, hopefully. And say, Pastor, yes, that is totally inappropriate. And then I pull out a suitcase. And I open it up and it's got packages, just packs of $100 bills. I said, I'll pay you. I'll pay you if you let me defile your heart and your mind with things God hates. Say, said, I'm not going to do that. But the fact is, most of us do it for free. Most of us pay to have somebody else do it to us. I'm going to buy cable so they can pump the trash into my living room. I'm going to pay. I'm going to go to this ungodly thing and watch this thing or experience this thing or listen to this thing or do this thing. I'm going to pay for it. He says, don't, don't, don't be conformed to the world. God says, don't do it. Don't let it pressure you. Be different. Be distinct. Be separate. Don't lie down under the die and let it pound you into the image of the worldling. Do not go there. Third, but understand how you can become the all-time worshiper that God wants you to be. How is that? Look at the middle of verse 2. But be transformed. This is, I love this word. Metamorpho. The word we get "metamorphosis" from. Every every grade school kid, you know, knows that you know what this is about. I mean, it's like the biggest word every grade school kid knows. Yeah, mom, I want you to know that uh, a butterfly there wanted her metamorphosis. <laughs> it's cool. Say, so, well, what do we mean, metamorphosis? Well, metamorphosis is when you get the, the big ugly, you know, tomato worm. That big's like, oh, sick. And you keep throwing stuff into the jar, you know? And one morning you come into class and there's a cocoon there. And inside there is some sort of green slime. I don't know. Scary. If you cut it open, it'd probably be, I mean, the worm is ugly. But something's going on inside of that cocoon. There is a metamorphosis taking place so that the, the worm is actually being totally transformed into something completely different with a completely different function. And then it sits there in front of the windowsill, in front of the windowsill, and people are looking at it, and finally one of the kids says in the spring, Teacher, look! It's cracked! And all the kids crowd over there. And of course the whole day is shot because they just all want to look at the jar. And you see the thing struggling and finally it pops out. And it is nothing like it was before. Radically different. It's been metamorphosed. Transformed into this whole different thing. It's now a butterfly instead of a big ugly worm. It's radically different. This is what Paul is driving at. He says, Listen, don't let the world squeeze you and shape you. There's actually something that will transform you from the ugly worm you are when you come to Christ into something beautiful, into the image of Christ. And what is it? Look at the middle of verse 2 be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, Calvary Bible Church is a very smart church. We could think, okay, now transformed by the renewing of your mind, let's see, would that be by watching secular TV, reading the newspapers, getting involved in sports, uh, eating a lot of tasty food, maybe doing alcohol, drugs, Uh, do I get transformed by work, uh, by play, by gathering possessions, maybe some psychology, getting cool fashionable clothing, maybe get some body piercing or tattoos or wild hairdos, uh, surfing the worldly wide web, I mean, how do we transform our minds by the word of God? By the word of God. That is the the mechanism that God primarily uses to change you from the ugly worm to the image of Christ. And that's why I started out with the disciplines we've already looked at. God's word, accompanied by the Holy Spirit in your life, is what changes you, transforms you into something you never were before something more like jesus from one glory into the next and you have to make a choice you have to be disciplined to do this you know you need to listen to the other messages on the spiritual disciplines because we spent several of them on the word of god and they all relate to being transformed you know read your bible listen to music with solid biblical lyrics read good books full of the bible when i say good books this is what i mean this is what a good book is a good book is a book that says this is what the bible says this is what it means and this is how it applies to your life a good book is not here's what i want to tell you and i'm going to sprinkle some verses on it that is not a good christian book that's a bad one go to those books that explain and apply the word of god you can't know the Bible too well. You can't say, "Oh yeah, I, I've I've just overamped on the Bible. I just I know it so well now. I'm I'm afraid I'm challenging the God." <laughs> the Word of God is not just another book. It's not a bunch of just archaic information from the past. It's the living and abiding Word of God, which performs its work in you who believe, if you intake it, if you get it in. And not just here when I'm pounding it into you. But the rest of your week. When you're at home and when you're driving around. To do things so that you're living and the Bible is just flowing in. And why would you want to do this? So that you can prove what the will of God is. The end of verse 12 or 2 says. That which is good, acceptable and perfect. So that you will be walking a walking billboard that says i am a sinner transformed by grace just look at my life that's what you're to be striving after satan wants you to be conformed in the world's image into a worldling so that when you go to share the gospel with somebody they say well you watch the same things i watch you read the same things i read You value the same things I value. You speak in the same way I speak. You have nothing to say to me. Your God is a farce. Grace is a farce. Salvation doesn't change you. You're just like me, or worse. And then you have nothing to say. Your testimony, your greatest testimony, is when people see your life and they see it's changed. And they come to you, you know, I, you have people, You, and we have so many testimonies of this, people at work where you have unbelievers are scoffing at you. Oh, Mr. Christian, oh, Mr. Self-Righteous, oh, Mr. Goody-goody, oh, Mr. This, oh, Mr. That. And they're kind of just pecking at you and pecking at you and pecking at you until their wife leaves them. And then they come over and they, they, they've heard you, you know, talking on the phone. Oh, hi, honey bunny, hi, sweetie pie. And here you say, man, I love my wife. And they're just looking at you like, hmm. Earlier this week, it, what happens is in our offices. Sometimes I walk down the hallway, and you know, different. Sometimes the office stores are open, so I know one of the guys is in there. And so that I first come to Brock's office, and uh, so usually what I do is right before I get to his door, I usually do something like, you know, guy grunt, and um, and when I do that, it gives Brock enough time to look up and say, back, <laughs> and so you know, I kind of walk by and do the thing so this week i was walking by and i said uh "Uh." and just i was walking by said i love you sweetie pie and so i turned back and said well i love you too brock i think he was talking to somebody on the phone or whatever really people need to be able to see in the way you live that you're different How you love your wife, how you love your kids, how you maintain your priorities, what you look at, what you watch, what you listen to, what you say no to, what you stand up against, what you say is wrong. All these things make you radically different so that when the worldling has some sort of catastrophe by the providence of God, they go, you know what, I'm going to go to that guy because that guy I think is a real Christian. That person loves their wife. That person at least knows how to have a good marriage. That person, you know, is not enslaved to all these things that I'm enslaved to. And now you've got an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And we see this all the way through the New Testament. For instance, Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Luke 69 says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter then writing to wives a little bit later in chapter 3 verse 1 says, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. A holy life coupled with the gospel is the strongest force to bring sinners to repentance. If you don't live the life you disqualify your testimony, your right to speak. Because you're really saying, well, I'm going to tell you something, but I'm not doing it. I'm going to tell you about life transforming grace, which hasn't transformed me. And then the question is, well, why do I want to do that if you're no different than I am? And you lose the power to really be a strong witness for Christ. I mean, when you think about it, who in their right mind would stand on a street corner and preach the gospel to a bunch of unbelievers. I mean, do you think that's, when the evangelism team goes out, do you think that's fun for them? It's like, well, let's go out and have people get angry at us and ignore us and yell at us and, you know, throw banana peels at us or whatever. Obviously, it's somebody who's sold out for Christ, who's more concerned about people being saved from hell than being liked. Who in their right mind, when they have a day off Sunday, when they don't have to go to work, would get up really early on their day off, get in their nice clothes, come here and rehearse and practice so they can sing at church? Who would come here and set up all these cords and all these little things and gadgets and wires that you see around here that disappear after the service? Who would actually give their Wednesday nights to be around a whole bunch of screaming kids and try and get them to memorize Bible verses? I mean, who would serve in the nursery and have babies throw up on you week after week? <laughs> People who have been changed by Christ. People who love the Lord. People who have their priorities right. People have been transformed by the renewing of their mind. You know what? We would give up very little time if we could just work with our lives to make sure that we can stick in to the cracks of our lives a little bit more of the word of God and less of the pressures of the world which try and mold us into a worldling. I'm going to give you some, some homework here. This is homework that will help you prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and Perfect. This will help you live in a way so that when the world looks at you, you will prove to them that grace changes sinners as they look at your life. The good thing is, is pretty much the most important part of the homework you're already doing. Praise God. As long as you're obeying the previous sermons. I know you are. Don't tell me you're not. I'll have to preach another hour. Um, But so far i basically giving you about 30 minutes a day to spend time with Jesus. So that that would require this, that you you spend about 10 minutes a day in some sort of structured prayer, either before or after or during your Bible reading, it doesn't matter which. About 10 minutes of Bible reading and meditation where you're reading and or thinking, contemplating the meaning of the text. And then about 10 minutes a day I'm trying to memorize some scripture. I said, one day a week, so just one day, maybe a Saturday or some other day, You maybe Sunday, you decide to get up and spend 15 extra minutes, so 45 minutes, on just one day, where you do a little bit of study, you take a passage and kind of dig in, look at some cross-references, maybe look at a commentary, and you get a little bit more in-depth study. So basically, you're up to 32 minutes a day you're giving to Jesus. That was kind of like the bare minimum. And just try to be faithful at that. If you're not faithful at that, work at faithful at 32 minutes on the average a day. And just try to be consistent with that at the beginning. Now it's okay if you want to go over. I'm not saying don't go over 32 minutes, but at least shoot for the minimum if you aren't consistent now. Work for consistency. Get consistent. Try to practice those spiritual disciplines that are going to transform your mind. Now, once you're there, of course, you're already getting the word in. You're already being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're obeying the bulk of the text before us. Voila, that's good. But now I want to give you some other things to consider. And these are just going to be some things you can kind of stick into the cracks of your life to help you have a little spiritual mortar in there to help you be transformed a little bit more still. In ways that aren't going to take a big chunk of time maybe. But that you can fit in in the pieces. These are things that I want you to consider. First, evaluate how you use your time. What do you do when you drive? You could pray. You could memorize scripture. You could listen to sermons. You could listen to audio version of the Bible. You could listen to Christian audio books. You know, recently I just listened to uh, Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and I listened to R. Kent Hughes' book, Disciplines of the Godly Man, twice. I got it on audio for the price of a couple cups of coffee or one movie ticket or, you know, one DVD. You can purchase a good, solid Christian book and actually listen to it when you're walking, when you're mowing, when you're doing laundry, when you're scrubbing the kitchen floor. You could actually stick in information... That's going to transform you by the renewing of your mind rather than conform you into a worldling. And that's what's cool about MP3 players, man. They are just great. You can listen to books and sermons and, you know, Max McLean in the Valley of the Vision. Oh, Lord. Oh, man, I love that guy. I was just like, yeah, I just wish I could have a voice like that. It's just It's great. You're just to get some good stuff in there. And you hear the best preachers in the world. They all put their sermons out there. You just download them and just stuff your head full. Man, it's just waiting for you. God has given you so many opportunities. So evaluate your life and how you're using your time. And if you go, you know what? I do this thing and I just kind of just zone out during this time. Or I just turn on the radio and listen to a bunch of people trying to sell me things. Bye, bye, bye. You know, maybe you should just like put something good in there that's going to transform you by the renewing of your mind. Secondly, evaluate what you're reading. And if you're not reading, start reading. Start reading good stuff. You know, there's so many good things to read out there and so many bad things. I mean, think about it. You can read a tabloid, you know, that just... Lies and slanders and gossips about people, exploits people, or you could read the Bible. Now, you just weigh those in the balance. Which one would be like the better for the transforming part? You could read worldly magazines full of immodestly dressed women um, uh, who are concerned with materialism and fleshly indulgence or a good Christian biography of a godly woman who loved the Lord. You could pour over the newspaper and hear all that slanted, distorted, twisted truth that has been filtered through the mind of biased people. Or you could read a book that helps you grow in the Lord. Listen, I never read the newspapers. I'm still alive. Ever. I mean, I didn't know. I just found out that you know, Princess Diana died. No. Um, <laughs> When I, want to know the, the, when I want to learn the news, this is what I do. I download some of Al Mohler's little podcasts since he, he reads everything. And he condenses it all into like little short, cool messages. And I just download a week of those and listen to them. And I'm all caught up for another couple months. I can't hardly even stand all the bad stuff going on in the world. But man, get some books that say this is what the Bible says. This is what it means. And this is how it applies to your life. Read the Puritans. You say, well, I don't know, man. Those guys spoke really weird. You know, they did. They were. They lived a long time ago. But they're getting more and more Puritan books that are even translated into you know, like modern day English for sixth graders. Um, you know, there used to be you used to have to read John Owen's, you know, Sin and Temptation. And it was a major pain. But now they've got it into like you know oiled english version that just slides right down and kills you um it's great start with a little book a couple good authors to start with are thomas watson and thomas brooks uh thomas watson's like all things for good it's just a little book or one of his other ones just get a little book and just per- persevere through there and you will you will understand what a good book is after that and you will never be able to go back to what i call christian fluff books again you think, man, where's the beef, man? These things are all bun. I mean, they're just, there's nothing in there. It's like, come on, man, we need some protein here. Finally, third, evaluate where the world is getting at you. Just take some time, maybe a quiet time or two, or, you know, a time where you're driving to work or something, some purposeful time, maybe with a friend or something. Just get together and say, where is the world getting at me? Where 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 is the world getting at me? What things am I doing in my life that are weakening rather than strengthening my faith? What is tempting me to lust rather than to have pure thoughts? What is tempting me to be discontent, covetous, uh, greedy rather than content? What is tempting me to be angry or anxious or fretting rather than peaceful and trusting God? What worldly influences are in my life that are pressuring me to be a worldling rather than transforming me into the image of Christ? Do an evaluation and then take action. You know, if you have a a hole in your roof, you don't just like, oh, it's leaking. Interesting. And then you just leave it and leave it. Why? Because it's going to destroy your whole house. What do you do? You go up there and you patch the hole. So take inventory. Where are the leaks in your life? Where is the world pouring its sewage into your life? Patch. Patch. Stop it. Cut it off. Seal it off. Get rid of it. Stop that so that you don't have to be constantly pressured into the worldling that God doesn't want you to be. So we have seen from our text. We need to worship God all the time secondly that we need to make sure that we aren't being conformed to this world thirdly we need to make sure we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind we can help do that by practicing the disciplines we've already talked about and evaluating our use of time making sure we're reading what's good and evaluating where the world is leaking into our life and patch those holes that's your homework for today pray with me Father, we just thank you for what we were able to learn in this passage. What a great passage. We want to be your children who love you, who walk in holiness before you, who live for your glory, who are transformed by your grace. And I just pray, Father, I pray that you would help us to avoid being conformed to this world But that you would help us to be disciplined, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we would take the application we have heard today and we would put it into practice so that we could love you. You have given us such great mercy by saving us. Help us to be thankful for that and to love you because of that. And to walk in holiness as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice always on the altar of worship to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.